0: This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, F. Scott Feel, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Pone. We're so excited to have a world-renowned pain scientist as our guest on the show tonight. Uh, we're super enthused to announce Dr. David Butler as our guest. Dr. Butler is the author of numerous book chapters and articles and texts, including Explain Pain and Explain Pain Supercharged, as well as many more, and the director of the Neuro Orthopedic Institute out of Adelaide, Australia. He attended the University of Queensland, where he obtained a bachelor's in physiotherapy and a graduate diploma in advanced advanced. advanced manipulative therapy. He then went on to get his master's at the University of South Australia on the sympathetic nervous system, and then eventual doctorate in education from Flinders University. David is a clinician, an international freelance educator, an adjunct professor with the University of South Australia, and an honored lifetime member of the Australian Physiotherapy Association. His professional interests focus around the integration of neurobiology into clinical decision-making and public and professional education in pain, stress, and performance management. Food, wine, and fishing are also research interests of his. Today, the focus of discussion is Dave's forte in the conceptual change science and strategies for the public and professionals conceptual change can kind of be looked at as a branch of educational psychology focusing on learners having well-developed existing misconceived knowledge. David, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for all that you've done in the field of pain science and education. Uh, We're so honored to have you on the podcast today. You've helped so many people across generations who've been dealing with pain, um, and you've truly been an idol of mine and a hero for years. Uh, My wife actually purchased me Explain Pain for a birthday gift back in 2013, and I've been hooked ever since. So, Uh, I know we kept your bio relatively brief, but is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners that that they may want to know about you?
2: Ah, thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks for having me on the show, and um, thanks for that lovely introduction. Look, I'd probably like to say um, I'm getting to the end of my career, I guess, but uh, I'd like to think that I've been a witness for a lot of change out there, and I can see a lot of change coming in the future. Awesome.
0: Kind of with that being said, you know, I know our talk is about around this conceptual change science, but to kind of get an overview of that, you know, with there being such a history of educational psychology perspectives from many different aspects and so many different schools of thought, Dave, what branches of educational psychology do you feel have the most relevance in this day and age? And why would you say that?
2: Yeah, um, you touched on it uh, before. So if we look at the broad field of educational psychology, I guess, the majority of the field could be classified under the Learning and Instruction um, group. And then we see this group emerging uh, maybe 15 to 20 years ago, and they could be broadly called the Conceptual Change group. And this conceptual change group emerged because um, there was this rapid awareness that particularly in teaching uh, high school but also university uh, students science that there was a an issue that there was a group who weren't getting it and I'll talk about it a bit later this group may not have had a what we call an emergent neurotag or a capacity in their in their brains to actually take on new, new um, information. And I guess the big difference between con- the conceptual change group and the learning and instruction group is that the conceptual change uh, group, it's where we're dealing with uh, uh, people who have existing knowledge. Um, and of course, my field is uh, chronic pain and chronic stress. And our patients, our clients come in with an enormous amount of Existing knowledge, much of it uh, misconceived, and the strategies to dealing with that are actually quite different to the learning and instruction where the patient or the client or or the learner is really thought of as a blank slate. So you're just adding information where there's not much prior information to deal with first. If I had to pick one author uh, for interested uh, listeners, it's Mickey Chai, and who's edited the International Handbook uh, of Research on conceptual change, which is I guess a bit of a Bible of a textbook um, which I use now.
1: awesome. Um, what are some of the strategies that you've found to be the most effective with utilizing the conceptual change science principles to address some of the public misconceived knowledge?
2: to address public misconceived knowledge there's quite a bit and i'm I think the major thing I say to people who are um, educating the public is and for health professionals that they're moving into education and the most fundamental thing in any education is to have a curriculum. So, for example, if someone says to me, hey, Dave, I've been doing a little bit of explain pain, I'll often say back to them, oh, that's great. What's your curriculum? And they look at me oddly and I say, well, curriculum, you know, what are your target concepts? Um, <clears throat> what are the resources you use to service the target concepts? How do you give them experiential impact as well? How do you measure the the outcome? All of these essential parts of, of a, a curriculum, I think, are um, essential. In public education, I think uh, an educator, you have to be agile. So, for example, in, in um In pain, it's not just having the one story. So, for example, I would have um, groups where I'd be quite happy to talk about the brain immediately. But in others, you kind of more or less sneak up on the brain if you want, talk about issues in tissues and work up to the brain. I think strategies for the public, you've got to have educators need need stories and the critical thing of, of meeting patients at their stories so, for example, uh, an example of a story I would give to, to patients, particularly someone who might be coming off opiates, is the story of the drug cabinet in the brain, that you won't be left alone if you come off the medications, that your brain has its own powerful systems which, which can help you, help you manage pain. There's lots of other things for the public. I, I guess if I had to pick one thing for health practitioners listening, I believe it is to get uh, my patients the public to self-explain. So if I was to provide some education, I would then ask, what did you take from them? What did you take from the information? And I would want them to turn that knowledge into functional knowledge. So, for example, say I was trying to discuss with somebody that pain depends on context all right and i might link that in with pictures of the brain how when you're in pain the brain lights up like a christmas tree that many many things come in to construct a, a pain output but i'd want them to go away and think hey you were right i had no pain when i'm happy or the mother-in-law was there and it was really really bad or gosh i tried that task another way and, and 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 i could do it so this experiential learning i think is important for the public and Just one more, if I could um, say, I think health professionals need to get into linguistics. (laughs) And I think it's underdone. And um, I believe it's, uh, for me, it's often, it's as important to change the story that a patient tells me as it is to change their altered movements. And there's a powerful link between the two.
1: Yeah, we see a lot nowadays, especially in the States, about words that harm versus words that heal and the language that we use and trying to really hone in on on what we're saying to these patients. Because whether we mean it or not, sometimes we say things without even thinking about it off the cuff. And it really gets back to them in a in a negative way and can really affect their plan of care.
2: Sure, it sure does, and I I couldn't agree more. And um, take the word painkiller, which I think is widely used over there. But people use the word painkiller for their for their tablets for their for their sort of medications. But um, if you think about that, the word painkiller is actually enhancing the notion that pain is enemy, but pain is a protector. So, I, I, for example, I would get my clients not to use the word painkiller, but call them pain softeners, right? or or anti-inflammatories, which is quite a potent word. I get them to call them movement-enhancing medicines. But that's just some of the examples of, of the educational techniques we'd use.
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, so, Let's kind of take the other end of the spectrum. Now, what, what kind of conceptual change science principles um, and, and effective kind of methods are you using when addressing the misconceived knowledge um, when it comes to professionals like in a peer to peer situation, maybe where you're trying to re-educate? Um, what are you seeing in that realm?
2: Well, I've got to admit that it's sometimes harder to to get conceptual change in patients than it is in some of my peers. I would admit that, but the principles are similar. So um, a health professional, if I go and educate them, I will have a really well-developed curriculum first. And I don't think that's done enough out there. So it's a similar process to conceptual change in a patient. I also think that health professionals with um, education, that there's a lot of allied help out there. And for example, um, hypnosis or or, um, counselling skills or CBT or motivational interviewing, these are all skills that can be added. And I must admit, I'm particularly impressed with with the notions of um, hypnosis. So I always aim in my lectures and and talking to to professionals and the public to to try and get people in what we assume is a theta rhythm, um, where the brain we know is more uh, sticky, uh, that information will stick within the brain a little easy. But you know what? For me, it is that the nervous system... The neuroimmune system is so interesting, inspiring, it's uplifting that I think that you can get out there and make people excited. And you know, what really excites me is with our new knowledge of plasticity, of change and the research in Explained Pain, I, uh, I try and inspire health professionals with the notion that, for example, in chronic pain, that recovery is on the cards lift expectations. And and that notion of recovery on the cards rather than let's just manage it, I think is quite um, important. And I I get excited about it. And I'll give you two examples of things that have excited me recently, just uh, reading up and listening to some brain immunological work the notions that the microglia in our central nervous system the microglia in our brains of which there are as many as there are neurons if you have a thought right if you have a thought there will be a network in the brain which is which is um, a light but these microglia can move towards that thought which i find that stunning and solidify it and, and 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 make it sit there and make it more easily retrievable i find that fascinating and And just one other thing, the notion of lubricin, uh, that compound, that, that, that beautiful compound that lubricates our eyelids and our joints, for example. The notion that lubricin is a psychosocial fluid, that it's actually affected by your thoughts and feelings and beliefs. But these are just examples of a story out there that should excite anybody in the world of health. And I think that excitement and and inspired curiosity is a critical thing for conceptual change in health professionals.
0: Yeah, no, totally for sure. And I mean, I, even for me, for example, when I first came out of school and I didn't know a lot about, you know, the explained pain and the level that that could entail because I'm only two years out of school. But, you know, after learning that data and just seeing the curriculum and seeing all that stuff and you're like, holy cow, what a change.
2: Yeah, it, it, it is a change. It's, it's interesting too because I also reflect on – on. Um, so I've been a, in the career for 40 years, but um, I reflect on something called clinical mileage and how you go through your professional career and then you realize somewhere along the career that you weren't quite right before. You know, what you were doing, what the thoughts or, or, or the, how you constructed your treatments wasn't quite right. So you have to admit you were sort of slightly wrong and then go on a slightly different direction. And in this case, for me, it's been merging my manual and exercise skills with a lot more explained pain. And and that, I think, is a a critical part of conceptual change. And some health practitioners, I think, need to be guided and helped through this change in their clinical mileage to realise what they had before mightn't have been quite right.
1: Yeah, David, that's a great term. I, I, I'm 10 years out now. And and I still don't quite consider myself an expert because I think I had to backtrack a little at some point in my career and relearn some things and re- rethink the way I, I, I looked at things. So I still feel like I've got a couple years to go. But that that clinical mileage you're talking about, I mean, you know, that's done wonders for my quest towards expertise, you know, and just recognizing it.
2: Yeah, I think that's important, the preparedness to be nimble and change as you, as you go along. Because as, as we know, for example, the neuroscience or the neuroimmunological um, information that's coming out now is demanding change. And as I said before, one of those changes is to lift expectation that for many people, recovery, if we're good at it, should be on the cards. Yeah, no, for sure. That's a great point. So Dave, where do you, in your
0: opinion, do you think that the educational psychology research needs to focus more on?
2: That's an interesting question, and um, I actually think that we, from the world of health, need to focus more on the educational psychology world first. So, for example, when I went and did a, um, a doctorate in, in, in education, I came out and I thought, you know, what have I learned? And I tried to summarise it, and, um, and I realised that that the data out there to convince a, like let's say, a 10-year-old boy or girl that the world is not flat, all that research, all that work's been actually done. And that hasn't really been transferred into convincing someone with chronic pain that a lot of the of the biology, a lot of the processes constructing the chronic pain are actually in the brain. so a conceptual shift. So my first response to your question is that hey, maybe we need maybe we need to look at educational psychology even um, even closer. There's a lot there, and like there's this silo of the world of education, and there's this silo of the world of health, and we haven't really Mixed enough. But to answer your question a little bit uh, uh, more fully, there's one area that we think is is uh, critical, and I notice it being picked up in the world of educational psychology, and that is the notion of emergence. So, what that means is um, if I, uh, some of your listeners would be familiar with this scenario. You're trying to explain something to a patient, and you suddenly realize their eyes have glazed over, right? Or, or you're talking to like a, a forehead. They're just not getting it now it's quite easy to talk to someone about healing of tissues because that's a linear process and it's as though we've been brought up and and all of our education is in a a linear sense but when you swap to talk about pain or love or stress it's a lot harder and that's because pain love stress are actually emergent processes so what that means is many things come together at the same time to create it so in a pain state um, there'd be There could be 20, 30, 40 little elements that are coming together at the same time to construct pain. Um, So this is contrast between linear and emergence. So another example of linear thinking would be someone who, with chronic pain, has a singular blame. The operation didn't work or he hurt me. Whereas three or four years later, there's going to be lots of other issues coming in. So this notion of teaching this ability to think collectively, I I think, is, is important in conceptual change. So I'd like to see educational psychology do more on that. And um, if listeners are interesting, interesting, some of Mickey Chai's work would would guide you there.
1: Yeah, Dave, uh, I know you've mentioned a lot of great takeaways for just general strategies to use. Um, But what are some of the ways now talking about emergence? What are some of the ways that you teach pain science uh, similar to some of the older methods? And then how is it different using some of the conceptual change methods that you're using now?
2: It's fairly similar and I'm thinking of your I'm thinking of your your question because I'm actually about to go to the university and teach and teach a group on how to make a, a curriculum for conceptual change. And if I look at that question, I think the major shift I've had in in um in recent years is to come back to the notion of curriculum. In um, the world of pain, um, in the early days of putting out Explained Pain, we put out this book and we kind of expected readers then just to go out and do it, to tell stories. And then I sort of realized rather belatedly that to really get good conceptual change impact, that we had to teach them translation methods. So probably the biggest thing for me is is to um, get this notion of curriculum up and going. And. And as I said before, it's very unfamiliar with health professionals. And I probably start off by saying your curriculum vitae, right? That's the course of your life. And a curriculum, it will be the essential course that you take a patient or a client on. So I'm actually insisting where Explained Pain is used in, in groups and with more complex dates that um, my students will actually write down and, and have a um, a defined curriculum which has objectives, which has defined target concepts, which has resources to service the target concepts, which will have ways of measurement, which will have experiential elements, um, and which will take their their whole curriculum learning right through, through life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a very interesting take on that. And, you know, Dave, a big lesson that I have learned, and I know many others I'm sure have as well, and I've learned the hard way is, you know, and you said this earlier, but how to meet your patient where they are at in terms of education their beliefs with regards to what's going on and of course some patients are ready to hear it at the evaluation while others need slow and gradual incorporation of that information over the course of care but you know without providing any protected health information of course do you think you could tell us about your most difficult patient that you've treated with chronic pain who had a successful outcome and kind of tell us about the strategies what that you did to kind of help give
2: clinicians a real clinical case study. I won't go through the most difficult patient, but I'll go through somebody who's had pain for more than half their life. And I'll just try and give a, um, a broad overview of um, this patient and how we integrated our conceptual change. So we've got a young, a young woman, um, she's 18 years old, she's had pain for half a life since she was eight, right? and it started in her heels, and she got diagnosis of, uh, this is on both heels, Achilles tendinitis, she got there and then to her knees, and then she got gut problems um, when her knees started to hurt. Pain went up then over the in intervening years in her hamstrings and then in her back, down the middle of her back, um, in, in her shoulder blades and up in up in her head. All right. So widespread on both sides. This um, youngsters in her final year at school, she loves sports and wants to be a trainer but she's been told she's got Sherman's disease and she's been told she will always have pain and she's limiting activity in, she likes to play soccer and volleyball. She's limiting it due to pain. She drops the metaphor repeatedly. I'm stuffed. Um, There's delayed pain post activity. This young lass has seen multiple health professionals with a full workup. Uh, um, I'm sure that there's nothing, nothing uh, serious. She's been looked at by really competent um, medical professionals. She's worried about the future. She has a friend with Sherman's who's in a mess. These gut problems are constant. There's constipation. She's worried. Some family members don't believe she has a problem. And as I said, she's had a full medical workup. So that would be a reasonably, I say, patient with a difficult problem. Um, Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I can attest. Sherman's is not a fun time. I've dealt with that my whole life. And it's really, you know, it's interesting. But I think a lot of it, uh, you know, is just the... Kind of the view you take on it, you know.
2: I and I think this was a this was an, an important issue. So for listeners, when I'm taking a history, I will listen to all of this, and I ask a lot more questions. And in my history, I'll start to put a little flag on my notes, and I flag it. I put an E on it. I call it an E flag. And what these are are things that I will go back to later and try and explain. Right? And every little flag I would see as. Um, that would mean a bit of circuitry in the brain, which is keeping her more more sensitive and sort of more reactive. So I would have a flag on a friend with Sherman's. Um, when the knee pain came, I got gut pain. On the metaphor, I'm stuffed, for example. Okay, so on the first day, I examined her, and I'd really like to, to point out that even though I do a lot of education, I'm a hands-on person as as well. I think that's something we never let go. So I did a really broad physical examination and just broad spinal movements. Um, When she flexed forward to her knees, it pulled in her back. If I tucked the chin in, it increased the pull in the back. Straight leg raises were 30 degrees on both sides, pulling and shaking in the legs. I did a gentle slump test, and that was obviously reactive. Um, I didn't touch her in terms of palpation i did a uh, a neurological examination as you would expect her knee her knee jerks were flying they were really reactive and i also had put an e-flag on that because that, that would be something i'd come back and explain later i did two-point discrimination um uh, which is something we would now do all with all of our clients who particularly chronic and she could discriminate in the lumbar spine six centimeters left equals right um, six centimeters I think that's about three inches for you Americans and um, we did a left right discrimination could she identify via our recognized program her left and rights and and that was actually normal all right so then I wanted to add a little bit more to my evaluation to really get my conceptual change in I believe we need to enhance our routine evaluations that we all do so some of the things i uh, the data I got for that was I wanted to know does the learner and we'll call her the learner really want to know about pain and science because some people are terrified with the word science they think of the frog dissection at school so yes she was keen i also wanted to know how does the learner like to learn face to face me talking youtube clips whatever i also made a decision does the learner have an impaired ability to learn so that's critical too and uh, and this is a a research uh, field which is growing now but I would estimate that at least half of my clients who have chronic pain probably have an impaired ability to learn from from the immune and the endocrine uh, um, perturbations they have. I want to know if they've got access to digital media and can they use it. I want to know where they currently seek health knowledge right, because my, my um, story will be in competition with others. I wanted to make a guess on their current pain literacy. Like, where are they sitting? Are they open to new ideas or are they biomedically influenced? Is there gaps? And this particular last says, look, I, I, I no longer know what's wrong and I don't understand why I hurt. So I looked at that as an invitation. Um, I also make a judgment on um, the level of misconception. So this is taking conceptual change to a high level now. So it's not just has she got misconceptions, but what kind of misconceptions are they? How deeply elaborated and embedded in the brain are are they? And I tend to break those down into grains of sand. Is it like a fairly simple little grain of sand of, of faulty knowledge, or is it a more complex embedded uh, misconception? I then identify what target concepts um, for the learner. What are the target concepts that I need to deal with to, to, um, um, for the learner? And I'll cover those in a moment. And, um, and then I was, um, I was ready to, to intervene. So that would be, I guess, for many readers, a sort of a slightly different um, evaluation.
1: Yeah, David, that's a great case study. And I love that you walked us through that. Um, I'd like to change directions a little here. And uh, you had mentioned you're heading off to university soon. But, um, you know, with a doctorate in education, can you tell us some of your favorite uh, and most effective techniques for teaching your students about your content?
2: Oh, well, if you drop to the tech, if you drop to the technique level, um, level there, number one. Well, I tell you, number one, my favorite technique is curiosity. I've done that all my life with patients and students. I want them to leave at the end curious. I want them to know what's next. I've always done that. The second thing, um, I've always been a believer in education with humor and I've Um, always believed in educating, I'll go no longer than six minutes without changing my flow or changing my direction. I try and limit my power points. Two basic techniques from education. Anytime you can provide one example, try and provide two. And another basic technique from um, education and conceptual change is the use of contrast, always contrasting. And, you know, somebody asked me about this. I do a lot of um, national and international talks, and and somebody said to me, if you give, say, a one-hour Talk at a national conference. How much preparation do you do before? And I thought about it, and it's about 40 hours for one hour at a national at a national conference. So a lot of people thought, oh, see, that's 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 quite a lot. But that's me thinking in the shower. That's me planning, thinking different sort of directions. And obviously, it's not as long as that when you have to have to repeat something. But um, this is taking education quite seriously. So I do plan. I do plan a lot. That might go down to me thinking, how will I leave them curious at the end? Or how will I leave my patient curious at the end as well?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point of that, especially because, you know, you're trying to inspire the learner to
2: actually want to learn. You t- Yeah, the want to, want to actually learn – yeah. I think also, uh, really, if I could wait, add one um, effective um, time when um, we might be trying um, educating a patient, it's, it's where they're on the balance. Do you, know, do you know, sometimes people, people think, have I got a headache or have I not got a headache? You know, they're on the balance of going into pain. And the moment they think, oh, gosh, I have got a headache, mm. then they have a headache all right they're on the balance but at that particular time it's a great time for somebody to think okay here's the moment when you can do some strategies which can actually influence that so it's this, it's this timing timing of technique i think which is important too i love teaching health professionals and um I I did hint at it uh, before I just get so inspired and 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 happy with the new neuroscience it's what's kept me in the profession and one of the key concepts that comes out of the new neuroscience is that how bioplastic which is the word we use uh, you know we humans are the potential for change right to the last breath is huge
0: yeah for sure and Dave, I'm going to ask a question that I didn't originally prepare because this one kind of just came to me when you were kind of saying that last sentence. But, you know, I know you do a lot of work and effort into your preparations and your classes and such. And, you know, in your opinion, how are you looking to improve your classes? Like what things are you looking to add and change to even to continue to improve um, your
2: outreach to your audience? Yeah. So my audience is all health practitioners. So, and I think that's one um, key thing too. I like to get this explain pain story, this conceptual change out to all health practitioners. And, and what's really nice here in Australia, we're seeing multiple health practitioners wanting to do it. So people are speaking the same language. Uh, so for example, last month I gave a talk to a group of medical specialists who are interested in using metaphor and the and language when they talk to people in, in pain. So If we're talking at multiple, multiple, um, professional levels, then there's obviously going to be a bit of a flow over. And I think that's important. So I, I seek it at that particular, at that particular level. Yeah. Um, okay. And the other, that, that was one, and that's at a different system level. I am always seeking, I'm always seeking story. I'm always seeking ways to get a, a complex scientific fact over. And I would have, and actually we've, Laura Mosey and I have um, written about these, I would probably have 200 stories. And we call them little neuroscience nuggets. And they're little maybe half a minute or um, maybe a minute and a half stories that we take to patients to sort of um, to fill in a gap. So I'm continually trying to build up these particular stories. So an example of a neuroscience nugget would be 10, 20 years ago, if I saw somebody with a really swollen knee, In the clinic, I would have said, wow, look at that knee. Gosh, that's the most swollen knee I've ever seen. But these days, I would say, wow, look at that knee, that swelling. You've actually started the healing already before you've come here. You old self-healer, you. There's some really good stuff in that swelling. Now, we've got to make sure there's nothing seriously wrong. That can be helped in another way. But I want to say with that inflammatory response, you're going to heal really well. And any future injury will actually heal heal particularly well at the same time. So, so what I've done there is a conceptual shift from swelling as something dangerous to swelling as something, oh, okay. And it's an empowering thing. But that would be an example of a little collected collected story we would use, and I'm always collecting these. The other thing which I'm also um, doing or moving more is into linguistics and particularly into metaphor and looking at uh, um, when we hear someone tell their story, look at the language constructions and, and trying to break them down into kind of metaphor. So, for example, if someone uses invasive metaphors, it's like a knife in there. It's burning deep inside. I know that that concept will have immunological effects and it'll be held deeper, deeper and deeper in the brain. So I would try and change that. I try and change prognostic of metaphors. Like someone says, I'm stuffed. I've got one foot in the grave. If I was a horse, they'd shoot me. And I'd give them the story of, oh, he's a goldie's and we are bioplastic and, and we can change. Um, I also try and deal with metaphors where people are seeking to put language so they can tell people about their pain. So chronic pain, which like doesn't have an object to link it to, like like smell has coffee and sound has Bob Marley. Pain's hard to explain. So we see this language emerging, like I'm falling apart at the seams, I'm fragile, something's going to break inside like glass. So I'm very aware of these and I pick up these stories because they're the kind of patients who I believe I can give a really good Explanation about why they're hurting so they can use uh, and express themselves in a far better language. And I guess that's the direction, that's those three points is where um, I'm heading, maybe.
0: Yeah, no, I think those are three great points there. And I think that's something to really take into account. Dave, we usually ask this question at the end of every episode if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, uh, physiotherapy or otherwise,
2: what aspect would you change and how? I know exactly what that is and it would be to finally get serious about the biopsychosocial approach. So finally get serious about it. Because I read out there that people provide seminars and stuff and they say we do it under a biopsychosocial approach, and inevitably it's just us. So to get a true understanding of biopsychosocial thinking, this unity of the bio, the social, and the psychological, And to understand that pain itself is a biopsychosocial construction. It's not just suffering. So pain is made, stress is made, anger, fear are made out of the unity of those three. And to understand that optimal health is something which is a a combination also of all three. And I would just love people to take this biopsychosocial phenomena and just, as we say, get it into the marrow of our bones, because that's the critical thing, not to pay lip service to it. And the major technique to get that there is to, I believe, is to contrast that with a biomedical approach. So a biomedical approach, which is to find it and fix it, which there's nothing wrong with that. There's people listening who have been, may had their life saved by somebody finding something and fixing it. But that kind of thinking can be embedded, can also be beautifully embedded in the biopsychosocial approach and make it much, much more powerful. So that's my one thing. Let's get serious about this thing, biopsychosocial. And if people think, okay, where do I start? Go to Wikipedia because we have found, and mind you, I tell my students never to go to Wikipedia, but the definition of biopsychosocial thinking of a biopsychosocial mental framework is excellent.
1: Very nice. Very nicely put. I think uh, it's quite the big undertaking uh, to kind of get that synergy between biopsychosocial and biomedical, but I think it can be done.
2: It can be done. It can be done. And for health practitioners out there, it is, it is liberating. It's essential. And, and certainly um, the conceptual change and the explained pain, the explained pain thinking relies on a, a deep understanding of biopsychosocial mental frameworks.
1: Awesome. Well, Dave, it was truly a pleasure to have you on the podcast tonight. Uh, An amazing experience for me to get to interview one of my idols. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, Would you mind telling our audience where they can find you online and in social media?
2: Sure. Um, All of our work is on our major site, noigroup.com. That's N-O-I-G-R-O-U-P dot com. Um, I write regularly a a blog on Noigjamp. Dot com And that's um, the most widely read um, pain sciences blog in the world, noijam.com. And you can um, see seek Group on Facebook and Twitter as well. So thank you so much for interviewing me. And thank you particularly for, for getting this, this particular field um, out there into health, out of conceptual change. It's so important.
1: Absolutely. This was a, a great experience. And I, I hope that we can uh, maybe grab a beer sometime when you're over across the
2: pond again. Oh, boy, I would love that. Likewise, when you come down under.
1: Sounds like a plan. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content.
1: If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast,